Friends, welcome back to the Wild at Heart podcast. John and Blaine Eldridge in the studio again this week as we jump into part two of a series. And you probably saw the title of the series on your podcast feed here. Why are you so ambivalent about Jesus's return? And what we did in episode one, uh, if you haven't heard it, you want to go back probably and, and listen to these things in sequence. But we were just trying to flush the multitude of ambivalences that, you know, people who love God deeply and, and actually yearn for the wonderful future ahead of us still hold within us and the various reasons for it. And so what we've begun We've embarked on a multi-part series here to try and honestly, humbly, candidly address the ambivalences in the human heart regarding the return of Jesus. And so, we are back for episode two today, and we just barely got started because we were we were naming a bunch of things last week. And so, we're going to, we're actually going to rewind now and try and move slowly and carefully through these things. But I was struck by this, Blaine, this morning, as I was preparing about this, last night as I was thinking about it. You know, 30 years therapist here in this seat, and I'm just remembering one of the basic psychological truths. Uh, One of just the realities of human experience is that change is first experienced as loss or perceived as loss, right? All change is perceived initially to be loss. It's really worth taking a moment to ponder that because that's that's really helpful. It's huge. And to go, when fall comes, I experience anticipation, but then I just get hit by this dagger thrust of summer is over. Yeah. Or... When any any seasonal transition, there is anticipation, but I can see in myself this, oh. It happens every year to me at the family cabin. We have this little cabin way out in the middle of nowhere, and it's not much to behold, but we do get away there, and we have to run the mice and the rats out when we get there, but it's a great place. You know, It's glamping. It, you know, you've got a shower and it a stove, and, and, and so it's better than just you know, having a tent for the family in the woods. But that fall that you're describing, when I am locking up the cabin for the winter and, you know, we would turn off the water and da da da, da kind of, it's just, it is one of the most awful, poignant experiences because in the moment, all I see is the loss. Yes. Change is coming. Good things are coming. My goodness, you've got Thanksgiving and Christmas and, you know, but all I'm, all I'm, I'm just in the loss of it. Yes. I would marry this point to that, which is that people have a very hard time imagining life being different, and that usually comes out of uh, our long-term shortcomings, but go, people who have struggled with alcohol addiction actually can't imagine. One of the roadblocks in the way is that they can't imagine enjoying life without alcohol yes. and go, 
Oh, yes. But you can? Yes. And you will? Yes. And oh, this is this is for people stuck in affairs. Uh, I can't imagine life without him. I can't imagine life without her. So let me let me read this from a fellow therapist who wrote this. They said, "Even when change is due to the best of circumstances, it requires us to lose something, whether it be a routine, a relationship, familiarity, a place that holds memories, convenience, a reputation, a known experience. Change means unknowns. Change means having to relearn something. And then, you go, okay, so if that's true to human nature, we're just naming something that's a reality to our, our hearts, our humanity. Now add to that the radical change that, is attributed to, associated with, perhaps not entirely fairly, but understandably associated with the return of Christ. Yes. And phrases like the end of the age. Oh, yeah. The, you know, the end of the world, the apocalypse, right? Those sorts of things. So I, we're just, by way of intro, we're, we're recognizing that there are these human realities. There are these ambivalences in the, in the human heart even in the best of us, around the return of Jesus. And yet, this is supposed to be the anchor of the soul. I mean, that one point is key for everything that we're about to talk about because if we can acknowledge that we experience changes loss, we can sort of respond with compassion to our own heart when that happens and go, I know, but it's okay. And that doesn't have to stop us or be the kill switch to our pushing into anticipation because Jesus' return is the the dialing up to 11 or the unveiling of the <laughs> real nature of the things that we experience in part. And, yes. you know, we're going to talk about marriage, yeah. sexuality, kids, yeah. and yeah. to go understand that the change or the culmination of things will experience his loss and you don't have to get stuck. Well, and the other thing is, it also, in compassion, we can go, okay, dear soul, I know that you are experiencing ambivalence around all this. I know you experience change as loss, and this feels like the mother of all losses because it's the mother of all changes, right? Yes. And yet to go, wait a second, actually, most change isn't loss. Like, you know, fall comes, but... But after winter comes spring, and then the dogwoods start blooming, and the songbirds come back, and it's summer again. And, you know, God's obviously been trying to replay this story for the world, right? Through the seasons of restoration is coming, restoration's coming. So, And one other thing to name before we yes. launch in yes. is that we are ambivalent in our nature, but not only that, the restoration of Jesus— is the most incredible thing that we have been promised. So, the world, the flesh, and the devil are completely committed to distorting, obscuring, veiling that reality. And we just have to talk about over the ages, saints have recognized the dark enchantment that lies on Humanity. Yes. And you mentioned Pascal while we were talking about this. Uh, C.S. Lewis and the Weight of Glory has a quote where he says, Do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Oh, it, it's a wonderful little essay, friends. If you haven't read it, The Weight of Glory, it, it's in a 
book of essays entitled by that. But what Lewis has just been doing in this lecture is describing the most beautiful fulfillment of the longings of the human heart in the return of Jesus. So, he, I mean, it's almost at the level of fairy tale. Yes. So he's just done that. He does that. And then he has to say, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. It's the fog, gang. It's the fog. We are all under a supernatural fog. And, and the fog is trying to rob us of the essence of our faith and our hope. And it's interesting that Paul says, you know, faith, hope, and love. But when he's writing to the Colossians, he says your love and your faith are actually based on your hope. My gosh. That's in Colossians 1. He says the hope that you have of the coming kingdom. And can I just say a very basic practice? That even in preparation for this podcast— I have to do a couple things on a pretty regular basis. And one is, I order the glory of God against the fog of the world and go, that actually is something that yes. I have to enforce all the time. Yes. And then I have to turn to sort of the Ephesians 3 and Jesus. I ask for power to see. Yeah. Reality. I ask yes. for power to see you. I ask for power to see yes, we do. things as they are. Yes. So that I can actually yes. joyfully anticipate and be awestruck. Yes. Yes. Even now, we do invoke those things. Let the fire of your love fill our hearts and our lives, fill our minds. Let the fire of your kingdom burn away the fog and the enchantment that we have been living under, all of us, all our lives. In the name of Christ. Okay, so last episode, gang, uh, we were just naming, oh gosh, you know, seven or eight of the significant obstacles that good, sincere people still have or find in themselves between them and and the joy and and the Maranatha of Revelation 22 of come, 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 Lord. And I shared that wonderful confession of a dear, dear friend of ours who was talking about, wait, no, not like, uh, you know, she had, had finished her graduate program, but she hadn't even begun to, to fulfill her career aspirations. And she hadn't fallen in love and she hadn't had a family yet. And, and she felt like Christ had promised her those things. So that's part of the problem, right? And even she really wanted to buy a home and felt like Christ had promised her that. So we shared that last on that incredibly beautiful, poignant confession of, of a dear saint saying, but, ooh, uh, no, not yet. I, I want to back up to that moment because we have to build a worldview. We have to clear away the fog almost inch by inch. Yes. Right? This thick London fog and so let's go to Acts chapter 3. Peter, who has been sitting under the teaching of Jesus very, very closely and taking notes, now gets up to give one of his 
compelling messages, and, and it is the Jesus message. Now it's coming through Peter. And he says, beginning in um, verse 19 of Acts 3, he, he's, he's got a whole crowd of his, his fellow Israelites in front of him, and he says, now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away because, and he goes on in verse 20 to say, and then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus your appointed Messiah, verse 21, for he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. So, the gospel of Jesus is the restoration of all things. And that is immediately relevant to the suffering and confusion and the disorientation that we are currently experiencing. It's, it's actually the antidote. Yes. You go, Paul's letter to the Romans. Here we go. Eight, starting in 18. Yet, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and from decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right to the present time. And so, let's just go to the summer-fall thing and say, look, the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the epicenter of the witness of the scriptures, the totality of the Christian faith and hope is this, this earth. Yes. Romans 8 is talking about this earth very clearly because it's the earth that's been cursed, right? It's the earth that's post-fall, the fall of man, will experience restoration resurrection, redemption, right? N.T. Wright's phrase is that the early Christian hope was that God was going to do for the universe what he did for Jesus on Easter. Boom. <laughs> so, so, and the reason why the Jesus piece is so, so helpful, and I was doing an interview with, uh, with some folks, you know, way outside the Wild at Heart Ransom Heart Orbit, and I was trying to explain, look, the resurrection life of Jesus is your antidote to the bizarre. The future is not bizarre. It's not weird, wonky, different. You know, we don't get wings. We don't get harps and halos. We, or we don't just go stand in the presence of God. You know, all whatever the weird, super spiritualized thing that you've been given, look at the resurrection of Jesus. Look, what, what does he do? Well, he goes to the beach, hangs out with his friends. Tells inside jokes. Yeah. Has eats. meals, eats, like at physical enjoyment of the real food of the real earth. So Acts 3, Romans say these, these passages on the centrality of the restoration, because this is directly related to what our, our dear friend in, in episode one was naming. It's like, wait, no, what about the houses that I wanted to have? What about my career? What about my calling? And it's interesting that in, in Matthew 19... Jesus says, I assure you, I assure you. I love that. Let's just hear that again. 
I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, he says, everyone who has given up houses or, and then he names relationships, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, and then he names lands, fields. Yes. For my sake, and and, and in that day, fields would have been, that was your career. That was your calling. That was your place of labor and fruitfulness and, right, creativity and all that. He says, this is all going to be restored to you a hundred times over. A hundred times over. This will, and you see, Jesus is driving at the tangible nature of, dear saint from episode one, that house is still coming to you. Yes. Not in a bizarre, weird, wonky, new way. The house is not floating up in, you know, floating islands in the universe. So, you, know, you can't make this wacky taffy. Like, it's got to stay grounded in Easter and in the resurrection body of Jesus, which still had the nail holes in it, because it it's not other Right, it's change is loss, right? Yes. And if this is like the most radical change of all changes, it's the most radical losses of all losses. And Jesus is fighting against that very thing in human nature to say, oh, no, you're calling, your your fields. Yes. Those will be restored to you. Fields are such an important piece because that's also, oh, we could riff on that a long time. That's family, legacy, community. But one thing, to riff a little bit on the calling piece, the many people that I know, we mentioned this in the first episode, can't imagine their calling in the restoration because it feels right. it feels so specific to this moment. So the very conversation I had recently with a really, really, really good soul. And they're such a good soul because they said, no, my calling, my life's passion is healing people's brokenness. That is what I am literally made to do. And they're great at it, by the way. And they're like, "How? what happens to that when I move into a world where, where no one and nothing is broken? Okay, well, two answers to that question. The first answer is that Things unfold over time, so there's lots to be fixed that's broken, which— Okay, pause, folks. Did you hear that? That This is back to episode one, there is no flip of the switch? There's no—well, this is the palingenesia, as you've written about. This is Genesis again, and go, what happens in Genesis? There is an intersection, God's presence with humanity in its creation. But as you and I have riffed on recently, it's local. It's like one spot. The Garden of Eden is a place— where that's the reality, and then the vision is take that to the rest of the world. Yes. That gets restored in the New Jerusalem. But if we accept anything that's written, say, in the book of Isaiah, they will go rebuild, they will go yes, replant. they will plant vineyards. And, that we yeah. have that restoration, and then it flows out. Yes. And so, yeah, there is a process, but, this but, because that doesn't solve the problem of imagination, which is like, but eventually you'll run out of broken things. <laughs> Can I just say, uh, let's say you had only ever seen a horse swim. You would be like, what will that creature do without water? And you go, oh, okay, all right, I see your problem. There is this magnificent creature whose skeletal structure and power is such that if you put it in water, it swims, 
but you will never see what it's made for until you put it on land yes. and go, there's this glorious thing that is masculinity. And when you put it in a battle, what you get is a warrior. Nonetheless, uh, war is not fundamental to the nature of masculinity because of a couple things of like, there's no good heart. There's no good heart that has been bestowed by Jesus that likes the actual act of killing. There's no good heart that likes to see someone die, but there's this tension because every act of justice and intervention restores things under the reign of yes. Jesus yes. and that power and go, oh, you'll do that. And if you really want an example, I think that reading through Job 38 and 39 is a really helpful illustration mm, of yes. what exactly was God up to before the fall. Yes. When he says in Job 38, who is it that shut up the sea, uh, that wrangled the ocean behind doors when it burst out? The violence of that word burst out. Mm. It's used in Judges when Gideon's men leap from their ambush. They burst out on the army and go, oh, everything in your masculinity, wrangling, power. Intervention. Intervention is preserved. Yeah. And has a place in the coming kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, it has a place in the coming kingdom. So I was going to talk about hunting, but I want to actually talk about that person's objection of I am a restorer. Yeah. And to go, yes, but not only. Yeah. And you have this nature that when you you carry uh, God's heart to pull all things like back into flourishing and to call forth the unrealized potential in things. And when you put that near something that's broken, you will heal it. Of course you will. But nonetheless, you actually still have the essence of what yes. you were made to do without brokenness. Yes. And the reason the Job thing is helpful is the amount of maternal language and like, have you seen the womb from which I give birth to the ice of the heavens yes. and go, hang on, your capacity to nurture, comfort, direct, pull together, that's needed into eternity. Okay, okay. We're getting ahead of ourselves here because we're about to get to some of the really tough ones on, but what if my calling was mother? And we're, we're going to get there in just a moment, but we're building a step at a time here to burn this fog away. And friends, what I want to suggest that you do is as you're listening to this, as you give some thought to it through the week, begin to write down what your particular ambivalences are, what your, your fears, your hesitancies. Your, why does it feel like deprivation? What particular loss feels irrecoverable in the kingdom? And we're going to name a couple of the doozies in just a moment. But like our dear friend did in episode one to say, well, wait, my career. I, I mean, I, I spent all this time and money going through grad school and now that's it. That's just over. Now it's, doop, you know, you're, you're Scotty, beam me up. And I'm suddenly now in, in the presence of all goodness and love and light. And But to say, oh, no, no. You said something, Blaine, last week that is so important to remind people your gifting and your calling were actually created 
prior to the fall. Oh, yeah. And are made essentially for Eden. Yes. Let's just name one example. The writers I know, the books that they are working on feel specific to the age in which we live. And that's true. But what we have to understand is that actually the ages on the earth all foreground some need of the human heart that exists into eternity. And so to go, oh yeah, even though the violence of this moment will be gone, the thing in humanity that you saw is still there and needs to be spoken to by you. Yes, by your gifting. What we're saying is, look, your bucket list does not even need to exist. Or if you are compelled to keep one, let it run on for about 10,000 years, okay? So, like, you know, Willard's line was so disruptive to me when I heard him say this once was, you really ought to be making plans for what you'll be doing in 10,000 years. And he was he was trying to burn away the fog. He was trying to break the spell. He was trying to say, look, that this gifting, calling, the things you long to do, the places you wanted to see on the earth, no, nothing like loss is experienced there. The change that you anticipate and now interpret as loss is not what the scripture says. And Jesus gets right down to super specific things, right? Like your body and your house and your land. And your job. <laughs> your job. Your job. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's why we're trying to just go just, you know, slowly a step at a time to, to drive home into these things. All right. But I think most people can track that far with us. I think they go, okay, well, I haven't really given it a lot of thought. It's disappointing to me that it won't happen in this lifetime, but okay, I'm tracking that my gifts, my callings, some of my desires, you know, to travel, to see things. I, you know, I've always wanted to get to the Amazon. Okay, I think I can follow you that the tangible, actual, concrete reality is still mine. Nothing is lost. Okay. But when you get to a couple of hurdles, but what about marriage and children? You know, our dear saint was saying, but I haven't fallen in love and I haven't I haven't, uh, I haven't had children. I haven't had a family, and I, I ache for that. And so we need to address marriage, and we need to address children very carefully now because, again, human nature is created for these things. It was prior to the fall that God said it's not good that Adam is without Eve, Right? Eve and Adam and marriage are created in Eden, which is the manifestation of the kingdom prior to sin and brokenness and evil, right? So let's let's take those. Let's take those. And I'd you love to go first. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. I know, I know. And friends, oh, just forgive our inadequacies. We're gonna put some categories out there. These subjects alone could take entire series in themselves. But And have, by the way. I mean yeah. if you begin reading commentaries on the disruptive Matthew twenty two thirty, there are probably more pages on that than could be read in a human lifetime. So yeah, there's okay. a lot to explore that needs, you know, to be packaged in a way that still originates from this is beautiful, this is desirable, 
Yeah. And this isn't weird. Yes. All right. Well, let me take a moment that does look weird and see if I can't riff off that into marriage in the kingdom. So on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a moment where Peter, James, and John get this incredible glimpse into Jesus's spiritual life. <laughs> and what they encounter is Jesus chatting with, having a fairly prolonged conversation with Moses and Elijah, okay? So, apparently, these are special friends of Jesus. And if you look back in the biblical story, you go, yeah, they are. Holy cow, they were really close friends of Jesus and shared a story together and shared battles and adventures and meals and that sort of thing. And then suddenly, they're back, you know, out of the past. Here they are talking with Jesus. And and what I want to point out is... In the coming chapter of your story, deep, rich, special relationships go on. Yes. Okay, so back to Matthew 22, because it's pretty incredible where the narrator tells you the Sadducees are going to ask Jesus a question. And then the narrator pauses to go, these guys don't think there's a resurrection, which keys you in to what they're trying to do. And they're trying to do an argumentative type that makes the possibility seem ridiculous. But it's a little bit, it's veiled why. And because it's these guys are weasels and they won't come out and say what they're thinking. So they give the example. So a guy, you know, has a wife, blah, blah, blah. All these things happen. Uh, he spouse dies, remarries, spouse, spouse dies, dies, remarries. Yeah. Spouse dies, remarries. Uh, who's going to be married to who? And, you know, Jesus gives that like, oh, in the kingdom, it's not like that. You'll be like the angels in heaven. And to see what he's saying, because he's in a, he's having a conversation where he's affirming the bodily resurrection. So he's clearly not saying you are a spirit with no relational needs. And I just love he, his incisive cut on their adolescent tittering because what they're really saying is, so Jesus, to have resurrected bodies, you'd have to have sex organs. To have sex organs, uh, you'd have to have sex, so you'd have to have marriage. But uh, how is that possible? <laughs> and uh, Jesus goes and is like, oh, yeah, well, first of all, in this unit of time, you have needed marriage to find the fulfillment of yourself in otherness. Like, we experience ourselves as incomplete. We're like the Trinity in that regard. And we find ourselves in union with others. And he goes, you won't need to do that because uh, the angels don't have any problem existing in union with God and one another in this deep transmission. But then he goes, oh yeah, and regarding sex, you will get the thing that your sexuality is always for. And there's this kind of opening up into authors like Christopher West or Pope Benedict, the former of whom quotes you, the latter doesn't. Uh, there's this, oh, I'm sorry, this is your longing for everything that is good 
true and beautiful, the life force of God in you. And it's not going anywhere. And, you know, there's one commentary. Okay, okay. So this is the ancient marriage vows. These are the old marriage vows, right? Where, and I think, I think a couple of you, you and your brothers actually used these um, in your weddings, but the ancient uh, wedding vows, Christian wedding vows went like this, right? You know, to have and to hold, for better, for worse, da, da, da. With my worldly goods, I thee endow. This is spouse to spouse, right? I, we are becoming mutual in all things. So with my worldly goods, I thee endow. With my body, I thee worship. And you go, whoa, 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 time out, wait, like, wait. First off, you're not supposed to worship another person. And what did the ancients know? Well, well, they were recognizing that the act of worship, the intertwining of beings in an ecstatic union, which is extraordinarily enjoyable, is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 7 when he says, oh, you died to the law so that you, it literally says you might be united is a sexual reference to God. Now, I, I, again, okay, therapist and me, counselor, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, gang. Like, in this hour of profound sexual harm and brokenness, like, whoa, wait, hang on. Uh, sex with God in heaven? Whoa, whoa, no, no, no. Just what we're trying to say is this. The intimacy, the ache, the union, the joy of it, that is a capacity given to every human being will be completely lovely, healed, restored, enriched, and experienced in the coming kingdom. And what I want to add to that, and deep, intimate, personal relationships that you enjoyed on earth continue on. Jesus is big about friendships. Okay, the incredible story. This is one of the stories that just wrecks me. I almost I cry almost time I, I, I talk about it. Who is the first person that Jesus appears to uh, on Easter? Mary. Um, gang, th- this is the wait. Jesus has such an intimate relationship with a single woman with a pretty colorful story that she is his choice to first reveal the truth of the resurrection and, and his life to him. Mary, Mary, I'm back. I'm back. Mary, like, holy cow, like you're, so let me just say, those of you who are married, everything that you enjoy about your marriage carries on. You will have a very special, intimate, you know, shared adventures, shared learning, shared secrets, with your spouse in the coming kingdom. It's not like you guys are sent to different planets, you know? It's like, oh, 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 no more of that. You know? No, it's just the opposite. And remember this, and both of you are healed, by the way. <laughs> so all the things that have irritated you are gone. And so the even richer levels of intimacy, much richer levels. And then for those who have not been married, what we are saying is, oh, everything you long for, deep, rich intimacy, camaraderie, a shared story together. Yes, yes, that's part of the coming kingdom. George MacDonald wrote the most beautiful letters to his adult children when they were separated, sometimes countries away. And he wrote to his daughter, and he said this, I do live 
expecting great things in the life that is ripening for me and all mine, when we shall have all the universe for our own. And he goes on to say this, I think then we shall be able to pass into and through each other's very souls as we please, knowing each other's thought and being along with our own, and so being like God. Now, like with permission, in a loving environment, nothing violating about that, friends, but just the idea of the intimacy he's describing there is very sexual in nature, the knowing. You you know, the word to know in Scripture is often quite sexual. And, and here he's describing this rich, rich experience of knowing and passing into and through each other's very souls in the coming kingdom because all the fear is gone and all the guardedness is gone. And I mean, the intimacy will be great. So children, children, let's add that in because another just dear, dear friend and and wonderful saint of God, someone who's lived years with Christ and who is actually very much looking forward to the coming kingdom, so is oriented to the story and, and living in it. Nonetheless, here's what she said to me. I just don't really understand how my calling as a mother fits into the return of Jesus and of his kingdom. I feel absolutely like my calling as a mom is central to who I am. I adore being a mom. I dreamt about it since I was a tiny little girl. And now I am living it out. And I just don't see how that fits into the next part of our story when he comes back. Just what happens to my calling? Right. So uh, let's take that for a moment. What about children? What about the ache, the longing, those those who have enjoyed life with their children, those who haven't, like our dear saint from last week, and who still want to have children. And therefore, the, therefore, the coming change feels like massive loss because, well, I mean, that's not going to happen. Okay, let's let's unpack that for a moment. Yeah. Again, on this point, you, when you hit these, I just go, hey, when it starts to go fuzzy, again— <laughs> Renounce the fog, and again, ask that Jesus would give you joyful vision. So again, command the fire of God and the glory of God to consume the fog around these things and to silence the mocking voice of the enemy over the restoration. And we pray for vision from Jesus to see how incredible our future is. In these specific things, like marriage and children. Because with children, I think one of people's objection, especially to something like kids, is to go, Jesus, I can't believe you're going to get rid of this. And I feel like Jesus must be dumbfounded when people say that to him because he's in the middle of saying, nothing good is lost. All things are restored. And we come back with, but you're getting rid of children. It's this... (laughs) I feel like you're not listening. <laughs> not and, only that, but Matthew 19, he includes family relationships and he names children in the restoration, children restored to us. 
Absolutely. And if we could go slightly cosmic on this for a second Please. and go, what an incredible thing that children are quite literally you and not you. And they are the, the product of the consummation of this intimate otherness meeting and becoming this loving, dynamic community, this, this interwovenness mm-hmm. and go, if imagining the wilder, more artistic stuff is your thing, that's a very incredible image that's given that keeps going of, no, you are Isaiah 7, to the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. Like, it's not done and now walk around until you've explored all of it. And it goes out there and there's this creativity that is satisfying. And mothering and fathering, yes, because those are core dimensions of God's heart that evidently all creation needs. And even when he assembles his church, he assembles it under spiritual mothers and fathers. You know, the ecclesia of God on the earth right now is the kingdom of God on the earth right now. And it it has fathers and mothers in it, right? I mean, just to use a very practical example, I have many children who are not my biological children. I father many with immense joy and playfulness and satisfaction and adventures and like, yes, of course. And you see that in the spiritual fathering and mothering structure in the church. So you go, of course, that everything you long for in the having and raising and fellowship of children and and family carries on. Yes, and two, the men and women who have a heart of father and mother that feels uh, in some part unexpressed or illegitimate. Yes. One of the incredible things about the pulling back of the veil will be uh, the discovery of how legitimate and real and incarnate and fundamental your mothering and fathering is. And you brought up this passage from The Great Divorce, which I happen to have here, but this is so well depicted in C.S. Lewis writes a book where he's in hell, but he's allowed to take a bus trip to heaven and kind of interact and see what's up. And yeah, with a bunch of passengers and kind of the premise is they get one more shot. Yes. Like, you can stay if you want to. And he sees a parade coming. And he says this wonderful thing where he asks, is that, he actually thinks it's Jesus coming Because he goes, whoa, that must be one of the great ones. And his guide, who happens to be George MacDonald, says, yes, she is. Her name is Sarah Smith. And Lewis is like, (laughs) what? Who is that? She's one of the greatest in the kingdom? And then you get this line. Lewis asks his guide, MacDonald, who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. Well, she must have had a very large family, sir. And then MacDonald responds, Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to the back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. And 
Lewis objects, isn't that a little hard on their own parents? And then you get this, no, there are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. Okay, I love, 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 love that moment because there's so much in it. So here is a woman in the kingdom now who is a mother. And she is celebrated as mother and living actively as mother in the kingdom. So, dear ones, like, of course he's not just going to throw the switch and take all that away. Like, it's deep in the structure of the Trinity. It's, my goodness, there's father and son. And son. <laughs> and, and the spirit brooding over the surface of the water at the act of creation and go, Oh, yeah, you will extend your mothering protection over parts of creation in need of your covering to call up the life in them. It's just so beautiful. Mothering and fathering continue on into the coming kingdom. And all these things are expressed like it's a dull ache right now. It's an outline, a sketch. It's We're working in black and white. And we're about to step into color, like the things that we think, oh, no, I'm going to lose that. It's just the opposite. It's like, oh, no, you haven't even tasted the fulfillment of it in your own unique way, in your own unique story that continues on. Because the end of the world is not the end of the world. These aren't even the right language to be using for it, right? The end, you know, the end of things or, or that's, it's, it's just simply not. Now, let me, let me name, because so deeply connected to children and family, let me name one more like Lulu, like one of the really biggies that we're, we're going to have to wait for next week. But it's the idea of how can I possibly enjoy heaven when my loved ones aren't there? And I've just heard this so many times. It's a genuine source of ambivalence and fear, reluctance to hope for, pray for, particularly reluctance to pray for the quick and immediate return of Jesus. Like, yeah, 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 but not not my lifetime or theirs. Let you know, let's later. But this will have to be later because we'll pick it up in episode three. There are important things to think about. And and Jesus speaks to this as well. Oh, Father, burn away the fog. Break the enchantment. We pray the love of God into every human heart listening to this, the love of God into our hearts, God, as we pray together, that you would break the spell, burn away the fog, lift the veil, and show us the absolute concrete reality that our current life is utterly connected to the rest of our life, our unending life. Help us name our own personal fears and reluctances and ambivalence. Help us name it and help us sort it through. Friends, let me wrap it up with this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You love Jesus, even though you've never seen him. 
mean, not like seen him, seen him, like you, lots of us have seen him, but we're not face-to-face yet, is what he's saying. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. And I'll be frank with you. I don't know that I've experienced a lot of that yet, but I want to, and I need to. I know I need that joy right now. I need it in the pandemic. I need it in the global violence. I I need it in all that's unfolding. I need it. I need that glorious, inexpressible joy. I know it is directly connected to the things that we're talking about. And so whatever is in the way, dear ones, of your glorious, inexpressible joy has got to be named, named, and dismantled. And that's what we're attempting to do in this series. Glad you were with us here in part two. Back next week with episode three. 